Father God, we ask that as we worship in your presence this morning, as we gather round your word, as we gather round your table, that you might encounter us in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you could be God for a day, what would you do? It's an interesting question, isn't it? When I was a lad, when Simon Mayo was on Video One, I'm not sure how long ago it was, because I, I was young enough then to listen to and understand anything that happened on Video One, there was a slot in a show called God for a Day. And uh, he would invite a celebrity to choose someone with whom they would share their cloud. Or name someone they would make a saint. Name one miracle they would perform. Or choose someone on whom they would send a divine thunderbolt. And that idea of being God for a while was also the premise of a film called Bruce Almighty a few years ago. Starring Jim Carrey in which Morgan Freeman starred as God. And Carrie plays Bruce, the down-on-his-luck news reporter who suffers a series of misfortunes in quick succession, and he takes it out on God. He starts shouting at God and tells God what a lousy job he's doing. I mean, how hard could it be to be God? So God offers Bruce the chance to be the uh, God for a while and see how he likes it. And he's only given two conditions. He can't tell anyone that he's God. Nor can he use his powers to alter anyone's free will. But anything else? Fine. And Bruce soon discovers it's not as easy as he thinks. So if you could be God for a day, how would you do it? And would your God be Christ-like? Over the last few weeks, I've been thinking about, with you about this idea of a more Christ-like God. We have been asking a very basic question. What is God like? And I've been arguing that from the Christian perspective, God is Christ-like. The Christian worldview is that God wants to be known. And not only, well, we can't know everything there is to know about God, but that he because he's way beyond our comprehension, but God wants to live us in, in relationship with him and has revealed enough to us to allow that to happen and has been reaching out to us down through the centuries and millennia to try to create that relationship. But his decisive revelation was Jesus. Jesus tells his followers if they've seen him, they've seen the Father. Elsewhere, the New Testament declares that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or the exact representation of God. Earlier this week, I set up a meeting with someone whom I'd never met before. And uh, he asked me, how will I recognise you? And I replied, well, I've been on his church's website, so I've seen a picture of him, so that shouldn't be a real problem. But I said, I'd send him a picture anyway, and I sent him this picture. And then I joked, just in case there's any doubt, I'm the one on the left. <laughs> and that's what Hebrews is saying. 
He said, God has been trying to make himself known to us. But in Jesus, he's given us his image. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And I've summed it up in a kind of mantra that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And God always will be like Jesus. Now before I go on, I just want to clarify a couple of things. I'm not primarily thinking about what religion people are or where they worship because there are some who identify as Christians who would describe God in ways which even I find hard to equate to the Jesus we encounter in the scriptures. Nor am I saying that there's some kind of cosmic test and if you don't get it all correct or even if you don't reach a certain pass mark well it's the smite button for you. Now the reason I think it's important it's because the gods we worship, they shape us. We become like them. If your god is angry, judgmental and violent, we can justify those traits in ourselves. And if your god is good, loving and compassionate, you will become a very different person. And a Christ-like God, by his spirit, shaping us into Christ-like people. Well, I just think a few more of those around in 2021 wouldn't go amiss, would it? So if you could be God for a day, what would your God be like? Bradley Jerzak, who wrote one of the books which has been shaping a lot of my thinking in the last few weeks, says, there are basically two principal images of God which appear throughout the history of religion and cut through the heart of most faith traditions. We might call them the highest moral values or the, high, or the impulses which drive these gods. And they meet in the passage we shared this morning. There is a God of pure will or freedom or a God of pure love or goodness. I'm not someone who remembers lots of sermons. I struggle even to remember the ones that I preach. But I do remember one from very early on in my time in Highbridge, my previous church. We had literally just moved to down to Somerset. I hadn't properly started yet and the service that morning was being taken by a lady called Lynn who was, and I believe still is, their church secretary. And she started with a question. And she wanted a show of hands. I'm not going to be so cruel. She asked this. Is God free to do whatever God wants? Is God free to do whatever God wants? And she asked people to raise their hands if the answer was yes. And if they thought the answer was no. And that question had gained a whole new level of interest in that congregation that morning. Because their new minister was in the congregation. Someone they didn't really know very well. And they were all looking around to see how I was going to answer. And I'll leave you in suspense for a while longer. 
You see, a God of pure will or freedom is free to do whatever God wants. This God just does whatever God chooses, even beyond good and evil. In fact, this God defines good and evil. Something, however evil it seems to us, can become good simply because this God did it. And such a God becomes a champion of freedom at all costs. And he will attract similar worship. People who will see themselves as God's agents and justify their behaviour because they're doing it for God. On the other hand, a completely good God, whose nature is pure love, is driven by a very different impulse. This God's greatest desire is for flourishing. When love is the primary driving force, this God will become sacrificial, willingly even laying down his life for others. And such a God will inspire loving followers who will do the same. So what type of God do we have? And what type of God do we want? They may not be the same answer. If we could be God for a day, what type of God would we be? Now let's be frank, freedom and love are both good things. In an ideal world, we'd like both to exist in perfect harmony. But there comes a time when we can't have it both ways. When it's her or me or us. Which takes priority? What has been dominant in our society? It's far from absolute, but I would say that the dominant one has been freedom, really. It's been the dominant story of this century. Ever since two planes flew into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Centre on 11th of September 2001. That was seen as an attack on our way of life, on our freedom, and all sorts of actions have flown and been justified in the name of defending our freedom. Including quite a few that have made us actually less free. It was easier to go through an airport in 2000. But what does freedom mean to us? Would it not be fair to say that on the whole, freedom has become about being what I want, getting what I want, doing what I want, when I want. I live by my conscience, my desires, my convictions, my passions. And you better not stand in my way. Is that how God operates? Is that how power works in our world? It's certainly one of the ways of exercising power that Jesus talks about in this morning's passage. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials and exercise authority over them. That's what happens when pure will or freedom becomes the dominant force. I'm not saying that they never do anything benevolent or they never do anything from which other people benefit. If you've ever seen the film The Life of Brian, one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in the film is when there's a meeting of the People's Front of Judea, when John Cleese is in the chair, and he, and he asked a question, which he hoped was going to be rhetorical, what have the Romans ever done for us? 
only to find all these answers flying back at him. But when it comes to the crunch, when it's us or them, who wins out? Will or not? And that was how power was exercised in their world. And let's be honest, it largely still is. The problem is, when we start to consider God as the world's true ruler or the world's true king, we can slip into the assumption that God's rule is just the way we experience it, only bigger. And that was what the disciples were anticipating. It's why James and John were so keen to get themselves manoeuvred into position. Maybe they were a bit worried that Peter was going to be talked of. You know, there's Peter, James and John with the three sort of head guys. And maybe they were just trying to make certain that they got in ahead of Peter. And who knows why they sent their mother to discuss it with Jesus. Maybe she was more persuasive. Maybe she was more formidable. Maybe she had a way of getting her way. Maybe they just knew Jesus had a bit of a soft spot for her and thought, well, he'll not say no to her. But their thinking was based on the assumption that the way God would exercise power, that God would enforce his rule and establish his kingdom, is pretty much like the way it's done down here. Only bigger. More cosmic. More spectacular. It assumed that God's primary driving force would be what God wants. God getting what God wants. But they were about to get a rude awakening. For God operates by a very different impulse. That in Christ we see not God who's driven by pure will or power, but by love. And goodness, and he calls on them to be driven by that same impulse. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, yeah, you know how the world works, and I know it too. But God's rule isn't just a magnified version of that. God is being driven by an entirely different impulse of loving service. And that is how God longs for the world, and how I, Jesus, long for the world to be too. On earth as in heaven. And if that's to happen. If that's to come. It starts with you. Earlier I mentioned. The question in the sermon at Highbridge. About whether God could do whatever God wanted. And I want to talk about the church watching their new minister closely. To see how he would answer. I abstained. And it was noticed. Lynn asked why I had to abstain. And I said, well, to be honest, and let's be honest, right? It's 2008, I'm fresh out of college. 
I was probably at least, well, actually greatly trying to be really clever. Thankfully, the answer I gave was helpful for what she had to say next. I can't remember my exact words, but it was something along the lines of, the more important question is not what God could do. It's what God would do. Always a dangerous presumption, I know. What God would do. I mean, if we are looking to Jesus, the most likely answer is going to be, what you least expect. And I suppose what I meant was that whilst, yes, God was free to do whatever God wanted, God's primary driving impulse was love. And that impulse of love trumped the impulse of freedom. That God is free to do what God wants, but what God wants is entirely determined by a different impulse, the impulse of love. Jesus refused to accept the way what the world works. His words rebel against the dominance of pure will or freedom. The God revealed in Jesus is driven by a different impulse or divine energy. In Jesus we discover a self-sacrificial, self-giving service which and love becomes God's power source. And it's a way that is more likely to lead to flourishing. And we know this by experience. Because it's not entirely unfamiliar to us. It's how we build a healthy marriage. Both partners set aside their absolute freedom and allow love to be the dominant impulse. In reality, we're free to do whatever we want. But true love puts limits on our freedom. And every time we say no to some sort of whim or some sort of want for the sake of the other person. Freedom is giving way to self-giving love. Self-centeredness is dying another little death. And unselfish love causes the relationship to strengthen. Or take parenting. Women suffer the agony of childbirth for the sake of a child. Parents sacrifice sleep, time, hobbies, even careers for their children. Love changes nappies, tidies up messes, drives countless miles, endures endless music practices and school plays. As Bradley Jertzakruber says, Freedom can make babies. Only love truly raises them. And how often have we thought when we are with someone we truly love and they are suffering? How often have you thought, do you know what? I would sooner suffer myself if I could put an end to their suffering. We might think freedom gives us what we want. But when love trumps freedom, that's when we see true flourishing. And it is but a faint echo of which the God revealed in Jesus upholds the world. 
and longs for its flourishing. It's shalom. It's not for nothing that the key images God used for relating to us are bride and groom or parent and child, for they are both relationships in which we've talked about the impulse of self-giving love overcomes the impulse of freedom at all costs. And chances are that if, like Bruce Almighty, we got the chance to be God for a day, we might do things differently. But would it truly lead to the kind of flourishing and shalom that God wants for his world? Jesus told the story of a farmer who sowed some seed in a field and during the night an, en an enemy planted weeds in am amongst the seed and the wheat began to sprout but so did the weeds. And the staff wanted to rip up the weeds and the master said, no, 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 leave it, you you'll just damage the weed. I don't know if that makes sense at all. But God's Christ-like way of working in the world is through love. Willing, not willful consensual not coercive faithful not forceful it's a love which doesn't demand its way but reaches out to us in self-giving sacrificial love god looks on the world in love and would rather suffer than leave the world he loved to suffer itself and that's what we celebrate at this table that at the cross, the power of pure love and goodness confronted the power of pure will and freedom and won. The greatest measure of God's greatness wasn't his power, but his love. Power can break a body and shed blood. But the broken body and shed blood as a symbol of love is the way God redeems the world. And that's how God gets what he wants. Through mutual flourishing. And it's the life he calls us to. Not by constantly demanding our ways and forcing our rights. But offering ourselves in love. Our world has more than enough people striving for dominance, seeking to impose their will on the world. We really don't need anymore. But a people who discover sacrificial, self-giving service and love as a power source, that's a different man. And in them, a Christ-like God can create Christ-like people by his Spirit. And 2021, in Harrow, London, the UK, throughout our world, we could do a whole lot more of those. Grace and peace to you.